If you have a Bible, if I can encourage you to turn in it to Judges chapter 4 and 5, and if you want to use the the Bible that's right in front of you, if you turn to page 203 and 204, you'll kind of be where we're going to be. Now, obviously, if I'm having you turn there, it means we're continuing our study in the book of Judges, and we are going to look at chapter 4 and chapter 5. And the reason why we're going to look at those two chapters is because those two chapters basically give us two accounts of the exact same story. Judges 4 kind of gives it as a narrative, and then Judges 5 is more like a poem. It's more like a victory song that was part of things that would happen in the Old Testament, but in terms of the book of of Judges, this is the only place where we get that, which kind of means this story, this next event in Judges 4 and 5 has some uniquenesses about it. And those are going to come up, and we'll need to touch on those. But there's something unique about what's going on in this next section of Judges. But at the same time, we've talked about there's a pattern in Judges, and the story starts out following the exact same pattern. So if you look at Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it's going to sound a whole lot like some stuff we looked at last week in Judges chapter 3. So verse 1 to 3 of Judges 4 say, And the people of Israel, notice this, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heroshith Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, here's the pattern, right? Here's the thing. A judge would die, somebody who was leading the country, in this case, he who died, and all of a sudden, what happens? The people again ignore God. The people, again, turn to evil. They walk away from God. That's the pattern. That's what we've seen again and again, and we've said that's not good. Walking away from God is not good. In essence, God had put them to the place of freedom, and they walked right back to the place of failure. Folks, one of the things we need to understand is Jesus, when we trust him, puts us in the place of freedom. But it is really easy. There's a danger all of us need to recognize. It's really easy for us to drift right back and go to a place of failure. That's not unique in this story. That's part of the pattern of judges we'll see again and again, and we need to understand it. We've said it before, but we'll underline it again. That's a challenge. Now, to address Israel's sin, to address that they went from freedom back to failure, God puts them in the hand of a Canaanite king, And in the hand of this king, his army was under the direction of a guy named Sisera. And Sisera, quite honestly, for 20 years had a reputation of treating the people of Israel incredibly cruelly, incredibly harshly, incredibly with a hard, difficult hand. And we can see some of that if you look over and flip to the poetry part of this section and look at Judges chapter 5, verse 6 down to verse 8. We'll see some of the cruelness in a poetic form as well as a sense there's hope. There is going to be something good. Verse 6, 7, and 8. In the days of Shamgar, who we met last week, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, who we'll meet today, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, rose as a mother in Israel. That's part of the hope. 
when the new gods were chosen, when war was in the gates, was a shield or a spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. How bad were things? How, how hard did Sisera make things? Well, he made it so hard that no one wanted to travel. I mean, no one, if they were going to go anywhere, they weren't going to get out onto the highways. They would use the byways. They would try to hide, so to speak. Not only was that bad, but it says the villages ceased. And the idea was if you lived in a village, and a village then would have been understood as a collection of people living together, but no wall, no protection. You're very much exposed. And it's like, you didn't want to do that. So what do you do? Well, you want to run to the big city where there is a wall and have protection. The problem was if you went to the city, there was war in the gates. It wasn't really any better. In fact, maybe it was worse because nobody in the city had a weapon. Sisera was making things incredibly difficult. And you got to think that the people who had been on the freedom pathway, freedom trail, and now found themselves back in failure might have been asking one another, is there any way we can get back there? Is there any way we can get back to freedom? Well, the quick answer, because somebody wants a quick answer, I can tell that. That answer is yes. God would say, yes, you can get from failure to freedom. Deborah, being a mother, and the hint of that even suggests that is going to be the case. But the thing is, as we move through Judges 4 and 5 this morning, God's going to do this going from failure to freedom, and he's going to use a unique way to do it. Now, again, we've said there's a pattern in Judges, and you're going to hear that We've got like nine more weeks or something, 10 more weeks. There's a pattern. So if you were paying attention to the pattern and you read Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, you'd be like, okay, the next thing that's going to happen is we're going to get the deliverer. God's going to reveal who the deliverer is. But here's the thing. In this story, we never get anyone identified as the deliverer. There's not one deliverer in this story. There's a combination Again, there's some uniqueness in this story. There's some twists and turns, but there's something unique going on here. Now, to be very clear, the, the commentators and people that read this story throughout history, have, that's created a lot of questions for them. And maybe you, as we're reading the story, working through the story, it pops questions. Maybe if you read the story in advance this morning, you've got questions. And I'm pretty sure I was told to never say this in, in a homiletics class in seminary, a preaching class. I am not super confident right now. Okay, I cannot answer every question that you might have, including the questions I might have around this story. Okay, because there's some uniqueness. Like, why is God doing this in a different way? Why is he not doing it the way he did? Well, there may be, here's the thing. Beyond our questions, there are four key things that God wants to say in Judges 4 and 5 to get us from the failure path back to the freedom trail, okay? They were on the freedom trail, and they drifted. And God says, no, here's how you're going to move back, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. And God says four key things. Key number one, if we're going to go from failure back to the freedom trail, back where God wants us, is we need to do what God calls you to do. If we're going to live in freedom, we need to do what God calls us to do. Now, again, that pattern runs through judges. We'd be expecting the deliverer to be identified. Now, delivering is going to happen. There is deliverance here, but again, there's something unique. So the story continues, verse 4 and 5. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. 
She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So when we're expecting the deliverer to be revealed, we meet somebody thinking, well, maybe this is the deliverer. But she's not called the deliverer. It's a lady named Deborah. But she's unique in Judges. She is unique. She's actually introduced to us as a female prophet, someone who is a spokesperson from God, someone who would bring the message of God to the people. In addition to that, she actually was serving, helping the people. She was helping them settle disputes. Here's another part of the uniqueness of Deborah. She is the only one in the book of Judges who does what we might expect a judge to do, and that is settle disputes between people. She is the only one who does that in the entire book, which always makes me wonder why did they call it the book of Judges, because that's not exactly how it was. She's the only one that does it. Well, that kind of creates the expectation, given how she's introduced and where she's introduced, hey, she's going to be the deliverer, right? Well, maybe not. Verse 6 and 7. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abimanam, uh, Abimanam, ah, get my tongue to work, that guy, his father, sorry, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with the chariots and his troops, and I will bring him into your hand. So we might have expected the deliverer to be identified, but all of a sudden she's doing something. She's doing what God's called her to do, and that is to call on Barak. Now remember, in Judges chapter 5, verse 7 that we read a moment ago, she's identified as a mother. So she's got a role in this, the mother, the initiator, and once you could say the starter, but not the deliverer. Here's what I want us to not miss. She's playing her role. And her role was to ask Barak to play his role. Now don't miss the implication of that for our own lives. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, and what I mean by that is if you have repented of your sin and you trust the Lord Jesus alone as your Savior, God has a role for you in his mission. He has things he wants to do through you for his mission, which means one of the questions you and I should be asking about our lives is this, am I doing what God's called me to do? Am I doing what God has called me to do? Now, a question that also needs to be asked then, since we're a group of people, we're a church, we should be asking as a church, are we helping each other do what God's called us to do? Are we helping each other do those things? Are we playing that? See, we need to understand if, if we're going to go from failure to the freedom path, to the freedom trail. It's going to involve us doing the very thing that God's called us to do. You will never live in freedom until you do what God calls you to do. I want you to look at some words that are connected to this in the poetry section. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 14 to 18. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makar, march down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. 
Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfold to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, stained by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Now, too, on the heights of the field. You know what? Barak and Deborah are not. Barak wasn't the only one who was being asked to play a role. Okay, Deborah asked her to play a role, but then a whole lot of people were being asked to play a role. But there was a huge range of responses. I mean, verse 15 describes the people of Israel, of Issachar being right on Barak's heels. I mean, they're in it as much as he is. And in verse 18, Zebulun, he's risking his life. And Naphtali, when it says the, you know, the heights of the field, Naphtali is saying, put me at the most difficult part of the battle. I'm in. I am 150% in this. I'm there. They're saying, I'm going to do my part. But then you got Reuben, and you got Dan, and you got Gilead, and you got Asher, and they're sitting on the sidelines just watching. Folks, if we're going to apply these verses, apply that poetic section to our lives, we need to understand there is a nuance. There, there maybe is a time to rest. There maybe is a time to heal up. I mean, you very graciously, all of you were very gracious and allowed me some time to heal up from my surgery. But you know what? That's not meant to be a permanent place, a permanent posture. No, we are meant to be in the game. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says that we are set free by Jesus to serve one another in love. If we're going to experience life on the freedom trail, if we're really going to know freedom in our lives, it happens, it comes through us doing what God's called us to do. We need to understand if we're going to go from failure to freedom, we've got to do what God's called us to do. Key number two, the second thing, not only do what God's called us to do, but we also need to seek God's presence. If we're going to live on the freedom trail, we need to seek God's presence. Now there's a very simply, you would say there's a big truth in the whole Bible. And one of the big truths in the whole Bible would be this. We need Jesus. And in John chapter 15, verses 4 to 6, Jesus declares that we need to abide in him, that we need to be in an intimate, vital, life-giving relationship with Jesus. Now, with that in mind, that you and I need that relationship, we need to be connected to God the Father through God the Son, I want us to look back at Judges 4, in particular looking at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, Barak said to her, he's going back to the interaction with Deborah, if, if you go with me, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now there is some debate around Barak's request, people even wondering, if, is, he, is he wimping out here? And I don't think so. And here's why I don't think he's wimping out. Three things. Okay, first, Deborah is a prophet. She is God's spokesperson. 
She tangibly brought God's words to Barak. And there's a sense in which if you bring God's words, you're bringing God's presence. Second thing I think we need to notice is verse 8 sounds a fair amount like the dialogue Moses had with God in Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 15. Okay, things for Israel in terms of moving out of Egypt into the promised land had gotten a little bumpy. They had been a lot, not a little, they had been a lot disobedient. It was a little bumpy. And if it was going to continue, if they were going to continue with the mission of God, Moses is like, there is no way I'm doing this without you, God. I need you to be with me. Third thing, we know from Joshua 1, because God told Joshua, hey, you're going to need me. I'll be with you when you carry out my mission. And since Joshua is the prequel or Judges is the sequel to Joshua. We know, and we saw this back on August 2023, Joshua told the people, you need God's partnership. You need God's presence to be able to carry out the mission of God. We need God's presence. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And about 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went with him. Now, here's some of the questions that often pop into people's minds. I mean, Deborah's message in verse 9 about not lead to your glory, that's raised questions. I mean, was she rebuking him like, you had to ask for me to go with you so you lose out on something? Well, I get it that there's debate on that, but honestly, I don't think verse 9 is saying you're in trouble, Barak. I think it's simply affirming, Brock, this is not a part of your role. You're not the ultimate deliverer. You have a role in this. Again, Doing what God's called you to do, you have a part. Because here's the thing. Do you think if you ask for God's presence that you should be demoted? That's really what it would be. He's asking for God's presence. I don't think he's being demoted here. He's saying, I need God with me. I need God's help. See, in essence, in verse 9, she is telling him, you know what, Barak, your focus shouldn't be on you and your stuff. It needs to be on God. This isn't your glory. What matters is God's going to get glory in this. God is going to be the focus. And we need to understand that we need to seek the presence of God so we can do what God's called us to do. And then we have the joy of watching God work and move in and through us. He's going to be moving. He's going to be working. We need to get that. We need to seek God's presence so we can do what God's calling us to do. Now, another unique thing in this story is there's an odd insertion. Look at verse 11 just real quickly. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Havav, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the Oak, and this is a really fun word to pronounce, Zananim, near Kadesh, which is near Kadesh. Now, this seems really odd. We're, we're talking about Barak and Deborah and going and attacking Sisera and all of these kinds of things, and all of a sudden we hear about a family that had a squabble. And the family squabble was so bad that Heber needed to move from the south part of the country all the way to the north part of the country. Okay? 
Like, why? We'll find out. Key number three. If you and I are going to get back onto the freedom trail, if we're going to live there, we have to do what God's calling us to do. We need to seek God's presence. And then key number three, we need to prioritize obedience over fear. Sisera had been oppressing Israel for 20 years. And God says it's time for that to end. Verse 12 and 13. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinanam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harishoth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Now, really what's happening here is the battle lines are being drawn. On one hand, you have Sisera and his fairly significant standing army. Israel's on the other side, and there's people, yes, but they don't have a standing army. And you kind of wonder, how was Barak, what was he feeling at that particular moment? I mean, God was making a really big ask. Please don't miss an implication of that for us. God is going to make big asks in our lives. God may ask you, he may tap you on the shoulder and say, I need you to take on a significant responsibility at church. You need to stand up and take this. God might be tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you know what, you need to go and forgive a person who's betrayed you. God may be tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you know what, you need to go and have that difficult conversation. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things that seem to come up in life that give me pause to want to hesitate and maybe it's because I belong to the Wimps R Us Club that make me scared, that make me fearful. If I was Barack and I'm standing there and I look and see this standing army and I look around me and go, these folks have never fought. Oh boy, I'm scared. I think he could have been scared. But here's the thing. Freedom, life on the freedom trail, you don't, freedom is about obedience, not about fear. It is about doing what God's called us to do. See, if we are going to live on the freedom trail, we're going to live the free lives God's called us to. It really is about prioritizing obedience in my life over the fear in my life. Well, let's ask a practical question. How do you do that? How do you prioritize obedience over fear? Well, look at what takes place in verses 14 and 15. And Deborah said to Barak, up. Okay, she's calling him to obedience. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? That's huge. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. He's like, okay, I'm going to obey. Verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Cicero went down from his chariot and fled away by foot. Please understand, obedience is about us aligning our lives with what God is doing. And Deborah is saying, look, Barak, God's going this way. He's going before you. Get behind him. See, obedience isn't about us trying to find the courage in and of ourselves to go do this. No, it's about us doing what God has called us to do, knowing he has been, he is here, he is present, and we're following after him. 
Obedience is about following the God who is already working and moving. Now the question is, why did she say God's going before you? How would Barak have had some sense to be able to rise up? Well, look with me at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. Pay attention to these words. The torrent, Kashan, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kashan. And what was the impact? March on, my soul, with might. And we need to understand, Kashan is a river. And so it would have water, but... When you'd go to war, you'd only go to war during the dry season. And during the dry season, the Kishon basically would almost have virtually no water in it. It would be no big deal. And yet in verse 20, it says the stars are fighting, fighting against Sisera, which is a way of saying, guess what? God is working and moving, which means God was bringing rain. And when God brought rain, all of a sudden you had flash floods. You had this torrent of Kashan. And all of a sudden then, these impressive battalion of chariots was nullified. They were literally stuck in the mud. Folks, when we recognize that God is working, even in a situation where you could have understood Barack being scared, but yet here it is. God is work, working. God is moving. We can get behind him and say, I'm going to obey. When God is moving, we just go behind him. He, we draft behind him, so to speak, because he is moving. We join him in the work he is doing. We can prioritize obedience over fear in our lives when we know the God who is already at work. Folks, if we know what God is asking us to do and we're seeking his presence, we already know that he's working, he's moving. And we need to just get behind him and go. If you want to live on the freedom trail, it's about aligning with God and following after Him, which is obedience, not fear. Key number four, trust God to bring justice. Fourth key, if we're going to live on the freedom trails, you need to trust God to bring justice. You know, the idea of living in freedom sounds great. I mean, you think about it, if, if we're in freedom, then that means everything's good. Everything's going to be right and just and, and wonderful. At least sometimes that's the expectation we get. And I understand why we get that expectation, because it does sound great. But here's the thing. And, and certainly history tells us that we don't always get all of the fullness of freedom in the moment we want it. There's a delay gap. Sometimes that means you can be walking on the freedom trail and going, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. It's not as easy as I was wanting it to be. There's a struggle in following it. Well, we said this story has some uniquenesses. There's some more uniqueness that's about to show up. Back in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we learned some more uniqueness. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of a sword. Not a man was left. 
But Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Huh. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. All of a sudden, now we know why verse 11 was inserted. Heber or Heber's family is about to become a major character. Verse 18 down to verse 22. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him and said to her, and sorry, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground, which she was, while he was lying fast asleep from the weariness, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, we said, and we'll say this repeatedly, throughout this series, there's a lot of violent thing in Judges. So here we go. Here's another violent thing. It's like, what do we do with this? A lot of people have struggled over time throughout church history. What do we do with this account? Now, if we're going to make sense of what we just read, there's probably some data points that we need to bring into mind to kind of give some kind of a process. So five data points, okay? One, JL does seem, it feels a little deceptive what she did at the beginning. Two, this may not be obvious to us in English, but the language that was used in the dialogue between JL and Sisera had very sexual overtones. Three, when Sisera talks to Jael in verse 20, he is actually asking her to deceive her husband. It's like he's wanting to hide an affair, so to speak. Again, the sexual overtone piece. Four, according to the poetry found in Judges chapter 5, verse 30, Sisera and his army were known to rape women as a part of their battle activities. It's pay, it's Poetic, but that's what it means. And then five. According to Judges 5.24, J.L. is the most blessed of women. The most blessed of women. The only other person that expression is used of in the entire Bible is the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1 in verse 42. Mary, an agent of the deliverance of humanity, Carrying the Savior. Here in Judges 4 and 5, Jael is an agent of deliverance of Israel. Now think about this. Into terrible situations, into this terrible situation, God brought deliverance, God brought justice. Okay? Unexpectedly, in a way that no one saw, but God brought it. Just like God brought justice and deliverance through Mary, a virgin who had a baby, Jesus, who went to the cross and died in our place for our sins and rose again. 
in an unexpected way, God brought deliverance and justice. Now, again, I said at the beginning, I'm not going to be able to answer every question this raises. I get that. But I don't want us to miss the big point. God brings justice. God brings deliverance. Now, you and I might have to wait for the full extension of that deliverance, of that justice. But please know there is incredible freedom for us in waiting for God because he does bring full justice. He does bring full deliverance. The account ends in Judges 5, 31 this way. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. God will bring justice. God will bring rest. Well, it's almost time for the picnic to start. I get to see certain things out there so I can see some things, okay? So what do we need to, like, take with us to lunch? What do we need to underline in our souls? One big thing I think we need to underline in our souls is this. God does unique and unexpected things for our good and his glory. He does that. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19, God said, I do new things. So we need to understand, God is going to do work and move. We maybe say, God, could you do it this way? And God's like, well, I could. But he may do it differently than you and I expect. That's something we need to understand. Okay, there wasn't a deliverer here. There's some new ones. Second thing I think we need to underline is this. You and I can enjoy the unique works of God when we do what God is calling us to do. When we seek his presence, when we prioritize obedience in our lives over fear, and when we trust God to bring the ultimate justice we need. Now, here's the deal. You may still have questions from Judges 4 and 5. That's great. Please ask your questions. You know, we can talk about it when we're eating a hot dog and a hamburger, okay? We can do that. But here's another thing I think needs to mark us. We need to ask our souls some questions. Am I doing what God's calling me to do? We need to ask ourselves that. Am I seeking his presence in my life? Am I prioritizing obedience over fear? And am I trusting God to bring the justice. Am I trusting God to bring justice to the things in my life? Folks, the way you and I answer those questions can either help us to ride on the freedom trail with God or leave us trapped in failure. Please understand, God's invitation to you and me today is not to live in failure not to live in defeat, not to live ignoring him. It is to live a life of freedom. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful to you for your word and your truth. We're grateful to you for the chance to look at your word, 
And even if there are some things in a passage that are a little more complicated for us, a little harder for us to grasp, Lord, I thank you that you make some things so abundantly clear for our good. And ultimately, Lord, for your glory. Father, I pray and ask that you would impress on our souls the message of Judges 4 and 5, that we would trust you for justice, that we would seek your presence, that, God, we would do the things you're calling us to do, and our lives would be about obedience and not fear. Thank you for your sake, Savior, we pray. Amen.